bringing you his authentic perspectives on important topics. They live in suburbs together. They live in the city together. They hang out together, all in the same family. We're the only idiots that fight because we want our voice to only be on one side. Like, does that even make any sense? And when the side loses, you lose everything. They, on the other hand, have a voice no matter what because somebody that looks like them is always in, in control. Frank, candid, and straight to the point. Well, it's just a skewed uh, system. Of course it is. It's a lot but, of adjustment. But, but answer my question, though. Should we let people what? go? Should we let people go? Like, let's just forget about bail altogether. And if your neighbor commits well, a homicide and kills people up... Nah, if you kill people and they next to you and you just let them come back and live right next to you, they can live upstairs from you. Let them come in your house. Frank, candid, and straight to the point. This is The Truth of the Afternoon with Dr. Ken Harris. Sponsored by Concordia University on 1017 The Truth and The Truth app. Now, he's the mayor of the city of Milwaukee. He's a young man. Give him a chance. I only complain about things that I care about. What I want you to do is pretend like I'm in St. Louis. And all I'm asking the mayor and the common council president and the common council, show me. You're listening to Concordia University, Wisconsin's free enterprise center economics, politics, and philosophy on the Bluff Speaker Series. Our guests are Dr. Rachel Ferguson, assistant dean in the College of Business, Concordia University, Chicago, and author of Black Liberation Through the Marketplace. Mr. Jason Fields, president of Madison Regional Economic Partnership, and Dr. Van Mobley, professor of economics and history at Concordia University, Wisconsin. And now, live from the Robert W. Plaster Free Enterprise Center at Concordia University, Wisconsin, your host, Dr. Ken Harris. You're listening to Truth in the Afternoon. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Harris. We're live from the Collaboratorium here at Concordia University's Robert W. Plaster Free Enterprise Center. I want to say welcome to all of our guests. Uh, we've had some really good conversation prior, so I think uh, this might be a this might be a three-hour show tonight because because we've only got two hours to do, and I, I think there's so much to do. But before we get going, I want to introduce you to who I call the man of the hour, uh, Dr. Scott Niederjohn, who is the director of the Robert W. Plaster Free Enterprise Center. Scott, it's all yours. Yeah, thanks, Dr. Ken, and thanks for bringing your show to, uh, to campus and to CUW. And you know, while we're colleagues here in the Batterman School of Business, it's great to see you in your other role on, at 101.7 The Truth, and it's such a great deal to have a live audience here, too. So uh, in terms of our center, uh, our Free Enterprise Center is really here to promote the ideals of a, of a free and virtuous society. Uh, we're interested in ways to support and unleash economic and, and human flourishing, and we do this in lots of ways. Um, we do it through academic research, through educational programs for students in the wider community on economics or free enterprise. Uh, we engage in public policy discussions, both locally and nationally. And then we try to apply free enterprise. So we run programs for students in the community for an entrepreneurship kind of program. So uh, whether it be the local community or students or colleagues, if you have a great business idea, uh, my colleague, Dr. Dan Semmel, will help you turn that into a business. So that's a big part of what we do at the center. But this event is part of our economics, politics, and philosophy on the Bluff speaker series. And we still have two more events this semester. Uh, and they're, they're completely free and they're open to the public. Uh, Dr. Ann Bradley, 
from the Fund for American Studies will be on campus next Wednesday evening, uh, March 1st. Dr. Bradley is a well-known economist, and she'll be talking about the intersection between Christian faith, free markets, and economic freedom. Um, and then the well-known Wisconsin business leader and owner of uh, Beloit-based ABC Supply Company, uh, Diane Hendricks, will be on campus April 4th. So people can learn more about our work at our center and register for our events on our website, which is cuw.edu slash cfec. So cuw.edu slash cfec, standing for Center for Economic uh, I'm sorry, cw.edu slash cfec. Let's just go with that. So if you want to register, you, you go to that website um, or learn more about what we do. So thanks, Dr. Ken, for being here, and we really appreciate having you. All right, thank you much, Dr. Niederjohn. So we are here to discuss a book that was given to me, and I'm just going to blame Dr. Niederjohn for me reading this book and causing us such an uproar. Uh, in, in, uh, why is that funny? Um, and so... First, let me introduce our panelist. Uh, she is the Assistant Dean, the School of Business at Concordia University, Chicago. Um, she's a co-author of a, of a book that when I read the title, I went, really? Like, liberation? That's not gonna happen. Um, I'd like to introduce you to Dr. Rachel Ferguson. Also, we have Mr. Jason Fields, uh, I'm going to let you introduce yourself because you're already on the air all over the place on the new 1017 <laughs> The Truth, 620 WTMJ. Yeah, uh, Jason Fields, and a uh, student, current student at uh, Concordia. Thanks to Dr. Harris. Um, working on my master's in leadership here at the university uh, online. I'm the president and CEO of Madison Region Economic Partnership. We are a partner uh, economic development agency that covers eight counties in South Central Wisconsin. Former background is former stockbroker portfolio manager and uh, former elected officials until I got smart and got out. <laughs> <laughs> and then finally, we have um, a good friend of uh, Concordia University, one of the first people I actually met when I was a student here. That's how long he's been here. So I think, I think Moses was your cousin or something like that. <laughs> Dr. Right. Van Mobley. Well, thank you, Ken. It is great to be here. And uh, I have been around a long time. It's been a blessing to be here. And it's a blessing to be here today. So I'm, I'm just very flattered that you have me on the panel. All right. Outstanding. So may I call you Rachel? Yes, or absolutely. Or Dr. Ferguson? No, call me Rachel. Madam Extraordinary, <laughs> all that. Queen Poobah. Okay. So why did we have to have this book? Why was this book written? <clears throat> well, I think we live in a very tribalized, polarized moment with politics. When it comes to issues of race in particular, it seems like there's two extremes. One extreme is uh, our history in America with race is so fraught that the American project is a failure. Mm -hmm. And we need to give up on the American project, give up on the Constitution, and do something completely different. And the other extreme is everything that was bad happened in the past. It's over. It's fine. Maybe it wasn't even as bad as you say it is. And we can just move forward and you know stop talking about it. And neither of those make any sense to me uh, or my co-author, Marcus Witcher. And so we wanted to offer a third way. We're both classical liberal thinkers. I'm a philosopher. He's a historian. And we knew that classical liberals offer a ton of insight on race and discrimination. And we thought, let's get this all into one place so that people can see that there's this other perspective that does justice to the history but doesn't give up on the American project and has hope for the future. So I think that's really the main motivation. 
I'm intrigued why you call it an American project. Well, I think that the American Revolution at the time that it occurred was a huge inspiration. It was it was truly a revolution. It was really more of a secession, politically speaking, right, right. but it was a revolution philosophically speaking. So it ended up uh, inspiring movements all over the world. I mean, these claims we were making about the equality of man and so forth, it was a really, really important step forward. And the idea of both democracy, but also the limitations of a, of a Republican government, right, of a constitutional government uh, with a, a limited government, I think was an incredibly important contribution. And we can see it in the outcomes uh, in America with regard to how innovative we are and things like that. But when we look at our history of race, we're seeing a group of people totally excluded from the gifts of that system. You look like you want to say something, Van. No, I was. Uh, it's like the American Revolution. Rachel's uh, placed it in the context as being a sharp break with the past. And um, I think there's some element of truth in that, but I, I'm, I'm an old European historian of economic history, and I would say that the American Revolution um, had a lot of roots in earlier revolutions in Europe, like 1688, and, and, um, and also uh, it never broke fully from some of the forms, and I, that, that's what we're here to talk about, some of the slavery, which is, was a, a, there before and continued after. Yeah, we were we were kind of saddled with something that came from before, and and I still I agree with your point about some of the rootedness in other revolutions, but I think the American project has carried that Whig idea on in ways that Europe has not. But were we saddled, or did we bring it with us? Slavery. Well, Thomas Jefferson blamed <laughs> blamed, blamed King George. They made him take that part out of the Declaration, but he actually said in there, "King George has saddled us with right. uh, with this institution, and we don't want it." Um, but and, then all they have to do is stop, and right? They didn't. Right, right. And so one of the points I make in the book is that the founders are split, right? So you have a you have a group of founders who totally gets that this could doom the whole project because it's incompatible with a free society. And they know that it has to be resolved, but they can't figure out how to resolve it and still win the war against England, right? And still establish the new country uh, because they need the South. And so they think maybe it'll fade away kind of naturally, you know, because actually there was some case that that might've happened. The cotton gin sort of changed that, right? And so there were ways in which they wimped out. And I, I quote Augustine in the book who said, Lord, make me chase, but not right now. Right? right. So, you know, sort of knowing that you need to deal with something, but not being willing to actually face it. And it lasted much longer than I think they thought it would. All right. When we come back, I want to I want to dive into. Well, why classical liberation is so important to okay. the black race. Why? Good. Why? First of all, explain what classical liberalism liberalism is and that's uh i think we talked about it for like a half hour we still didn't come up with a real answer but and then i'm going to ask jason some questions about discrimination unequal protections as it relates to money and how that can impact communities you're listening to truth in the afternoon i'm your host dr ken harris we're live from concordia university you're listening to Concordia University, Wisconsin's Free Enterprise Center Economics, Politics, and Philosophy on the Bluff Speaker Series. Our guests are Dr. Rachel Ferguson, Assistant Dean in the College of Business, Concordia University, Chicago, and author of Black Liberation Through the Marketplace. Mr. Jason Fields, President of Madison Regional Economic Partnership, and Dr. Van Mobley, Professor of Economics and History at Concordia University, Wisconsin. 
And now, live from the Robert W. Plaster Free Enterprise Center at Concordia University, Wisconsin, your host, Dr. Ken Harris. You're listening to Truth in the Afternoon. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Harris. I'm here with Dr. Rachel Ferguson, Jason Fields, and Van Mobley. So what is classical liberalism? Yeah, so we use the word liberalism in kind of a weird way in America, right? When we call someone a liberal, we generally mean that they're center-left or somewhat left-leaning. But that's not how the word is used anywhere else in the world, and it's right. not how it's used in philosophy. Uh, it goes back to that, that Latin root, liber, which means free. And the idea is that the job of the government is to protect the rights of the individual. Um, we, we're a pluralistic society. We're big. We don't always agree on our vision of the good life. And so if we're going to live together and tolerate one another, we need the government to do that, those minimal things, right, but not necessarily try and make us virtuous or something like that, because that goes beyond what a modern government can really do. And so classical liberalism is just appealing to that idea of limited government. It's a value for property rights, freedom of contract, the, the rule of just laws, the equal protection of the rule of just laws, and a value for the amazing things that markets can accomplish and the amazing things that civil society can accomplish, our neighborhoods, our families, and our churches. Uh, other ways that we get together just voluntarily. So, Jason, you read the book. How do you believe, and yeah, I'm calling you out because you're the no. black guy on the panel. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> so, how can it uplift the black race? I mean, you're, you're in economics, yeah. you're in finance. You know, I love when I read the, the book, I, first off, I love your definition of liberalism and classic liberalism and how you connected it towards, you know, the marketplace and what we need to do as, or not do, but what we could be doing as African Americans as a community in whole. I think, so I, I love the definition that you gave, because to you. me it made sense. I mean, I'm a sort of centrist, sort of blue dog Democrat, but really what that mm -hmm. means is that I'm sort of fiscally conservative, but I'm socially, politically liberal. Mm -hmm. And what I loved about it is, how do we move African Americans to a position where we are sustaining and empowering ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. In a political environment where, as you said earlier, you have two dichotomies, you have two extremes. One extreme says pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Ain't no way in the world that can happen if you ignore all the things that African-Americans and people of color have been through through, this, through history. The other is then, you know, can you, is social justice only the the way to empower our community and it's not if we're not talking about marketplaces and free enterprise and how african-americans can take advantage of it to empower their communities then what are we doing unfortunately i think what's happened historically is whenever african-americans people in our community have gotten to a place where they can lift themselves up by their bootstrap what you've seen is exactly what you've laid out in your book policies coming down, um, you know, a different kind of mindset. Everything is a free market until political interests start taking mm -hmm. precedent, right. right? And so when you start looking and talking about free market principles, that only takes you so far. It will only keep you if everybody is willing to play the game fairly. And this, I believe this is why you see, and Ken and I have talked about this, this sort of almost visceral reaction to capitalism right, now right. by members in the African-American community. Yeah. Because I think you have that because what that capitalism, that free enterprise market, it wasn't held true right. 
for many people in our community. It, let me just add to that. I think a lot of times when people hear the word capitalism, they're thinking of cronyism. They're thinking right. of crony capitalism, where right. established right. interests, right? right. Uh, you know, they're in bed with Congress and they make the rules up so they can keep other people out. Right. And that's a lot of what uh, the black community has suffered from. And so that's why I don't even use the word in the book, right? So we talk about free markets because I really want to draw people's attention to a situation in which everyone is playing by the same rules, but that is not what black Americans have experienced. So Van, economic historian, what happened? Well, well, I would actually, I just wanted to go back to something that Jason said and just sort of second it. One of the, the I thought to me, the most powerful parts about the book was that it did bring to mind ex- specific examples where the black community had been making progress, they had been playing by the rules, they had been doing everything right, and they had the rug pulled out from under them. Right. And those are important to remember. And so, and I think that's one of the real strengths of this book. And so, you know, um, that's it. I just wanted to throw that in. That's oh, it's a great you. part of the book. Yeah. And, and I really, it's important to do that. Yes, it is. But at what point will that change? We started with the Freedmen's Bureau in 1868, and we go forward, and every single time the black community has shown progress. Tulsa, Rosewood, it's been burned down, bombed, right. torn up, riots all over the country. Yeah. How do we plug in? When, when you say marketplace, how do we plug into the marketplace when every time we try, we're rejected. Just today, in, just today in Baltimore Magazine, uh, there was an article on the highway that led to nowhere that went right through these amazing, thriving, middle-class black neighborhoods destroyed. Sounds right? familiar like Milwaukee. Yeah, and happened in my hometown of St. Louis. And so I think that's right. So I think we have to start from where we're at. There's no way to undo what has happened in the past. And so what can we... Well, (laughs) we can talk about it, Ken. But the point is, is that we have to start with what we've got right now. And so I think that one of the solutions that I talk about in the book is neighborhood stabilization, where I talk about, I kind of hold... But aren't we doing that already? No. No, we are not. The federal government has bids and all sorts of stuff all over the... Yeah, yeah. That's not neighborhood stabilization. (laughs) That's right. And so the issue is that both the state and a lot of private philanthropy have uh, basically come into communities and helped them in a kind of top-down way. Right. Right? I'm above you. I know what you need, and I'm going to drop it on your head. That's the mistake we made. It's a social engineering mindset. Adam Smith called it the man of system mindset. Right? right? It's like a chessboard. I'm the guy moving you around on the chessboard. Isn't that called socialism in other countries? <laughs> it sure is. Oh, okay. just... You said it, not me. Okay. Um, but the point is, is that neighborhood stabilization is organic. It's bottom up. And the idea is from a heart of love. It's hyper local. It's long term commitment. It's surrounding community members with the resources they need to achieve their vision for their own lives. Mm-hmm. And it's not just the government who's doing it. It's private philanthropy, too. They're being lazy in the way that they intervene in people's lives, and they are making them just as dependent as the welfare state makes people, right? And so they shouldn't complain to some extent if they can't do a better job themselves. Now, we are seeing really wonderful examples of neighborhood stabilization. Bob Lupton in Atlanta, my own friend Lucas Regley in St. Louis, right? The great John Perkins of the Christian Community Development Association. We can talk about those who get it, but we need to talk about them a lot more because a lot of people don't realize how toxic a lot of their charity is. You know, I would, I, I, would, I would love to ask the, and hear from the panel, and even you, Ken, because I know we had this conversation. If we're talking about 
free market. And what I got from your book is I love the sort of balanced approach, right? That you cannot just take one side or one philosophy, one theory, and think that it's 100% accurate. Because I have, I'm going to finish this point. I have. Because what it does is, particularly as an African-American, and I'll say this, as an African-American elected official, I have never been in a room where 100% of what Republicans say are right and 100% of what Democrats say are right. And, and when, you, when you're put in those kinds of positions, yes, it would be easy to say Republicans talk about free market until special interests come into play. Democrats do the same thing. Let's take education for one. I'm a huge school choice supporter, meaning that if, if in a free market system, the money and the power and the, the, the people will follow where they can get the best service and the best quality. Our education system doesn't have that. We are consistently sending young African-American kids to education systems that we know for a fact are not delivering. And yet when you try to oppose that, it's not necessarily Republicans holding you up from that. It's Democrats. And I can tell you because I've been in those battles. And so when we say that, that this free market, you know, it, it has to be a balanced approach by African-Americans. The, what I loved about that classic liberalism the definition is that many African-Americans are small government minded. We are traditionally, you know, socially liberal in the political sense, but officially conservative. We don't want everybody in our business as far from a government standpoint. We just want the playing field to be fair. But when you live in a two party system, you don't have that. And in actuality, as a as a, a former African American elected official, you are often pitted to choose which which side you should go with, even when neither one of those sides are right for African Americans. When we come back, I want to ask uh, Van Mobley about what happened to the civil society, like what happened to the promise, you know, it, beyond the financial beyond the housing, beyond the 40 acres and a mule, what happened to just having a civil society that would have actually made it balanced and given everything that's promised? I often wonder about that. You're listening to 1017 The Truth. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Harris. We're live from Concordia University Collaboratorium. Traffic, weather, and sports up next. You're listening to Concordia University, Wisconsin's free Enterprise Center Economics, Politics, and Philosophy on the Bluff Speaker Series. Our guests are Dr. Rachel Ferguson, Assistant Dean in the College of Business, Concordia University, Chicago, and author of Black Liberation Through the Marketplace. Mr. Jason Fields, President of Madison Regional Economic Partnership, and Dr. Van Mobley, Professor of Economics and History at Concordia University, Wisconsin. And now, live from the Robert W. Plaster Free Enterprise Center at Concordia University, Wisconsin, your host, Dr. Ken Harris. Welcome back. We're here at Concordia University. So if you have any questions or comments, you can hit us on the talk and text line, 833-212-1017 is the number. So Van, a civil society. So historically, we've always talked and we've always been promised, even those that were in and out of slavery, that America would be the, the new home, the new place, a civil society that was fair, that was free of discrimination, and have equal protection through the law. I'm kind of thinking that didn't happen. 
What do you think? Well, I think uh, certainly we can look at historical examples where it did not happen. And I think that's, as I said before, that's one of Rachel's great strengths of her book. Uh, you know, one of the big opportunities, and we get them, every generation has them, and we just want to make sure that we get ours right. And sometimes you learn from going back and looking at the past. And one of the things that Rachel talked about, and I thought was great in this book, is about uh, after the American Civil War, there were a lot of institutions created. There were a lot of, um, a lot of energy and a lot of hope that there would be able to have, uh, you know, a thriving black communities integrated with white communities. And then really it, uh, it failed. Uh, when, um, and, you know, in the, seven, in, the, in the 1870s, the 1880s, and the 1890s. And, and it failed for a number of reasons. I think that it failed because you had the resurgence of the Democratic Party with a lot of uh, ties to the old Confederate officers oftentimes in the South. And I also think that the Northern Republican Party, um, you know, they were, became um, entranced by other issues, you know, oftentimes legitimate issues. So, so people are distracted and they begin to look at other things. And it's just hard. So, and I think that that always is the danger for every generation, including our own. Um, but I'm always hopeful, too. I got to say, that sounds like an excuse. Because banking, housing, you name it, everything that uh, farmers, everything we strived at was destroyed purposefully. That's right. And uh, by force. And right. as, as you noted, and... Right. Um, and there was, um, I think, on the part of the, those Republicans um, in, the, in the North um, that, that sort of allowed it to happen, they believed the alternative was another civil war, which they did not want. And, you know, that's, I think those are historical facts. And, um, and I, I'm interested in what Jason would think about that. I mean, because, you know, the post-war Civil War Reconstruction, and Rachel as well, it, you know, it's one of the great learning episodes where we, you know. Didn't reconstruct. Didn't reconstruct. Right. Yeah. Ladies first. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think Ken's getting to like a really fundamental question, right? right? Which is how do we how do we maintain hope? Why do we maintain hope that we're going to achieve this fair and free society that we dreamt of? Because that's part of your book. It says examine the hope, heartbreak, and promise of America, that's but it right. never came to pass. And and I take I actually have taken my sense of hope from the black community itself. And I believe that this hope comes from the black church tradition. I really do. Which is an incredibly powerful tradition, chapter five of the book. <laughs> Take a look at it. But incredibly, I, in the face of everything, I think black Americans saw that the American project itself was a great project and that they were suffering by being excluded from that project. So they didn't want to burn down the American project. They wanted in. That's what they wanted. They wanted inclusion. And so what we now have is a long history of battling to get those basic fundamental rights. We now have dealt with most of the de jure issues that we had to deal with. And now we're playing catch up, frankly. We're playing economic catch up and cultural catch up. And so we have work to do. Mm -hmm. But I see I, I stand with my black Christian brothers and sisters who loved their white oppressors even, right? And believed that they were twisted by racism in the same way, or not in the same way, but to the right. same extent as black people's lives were twisted by racism. And that their contribution to the American tradition was the correction of that mistake, and so I am holding on to the hope that they have held on to. And I think actually a really great example of that hope is the Black National Anthem. If you read the lyrics of the Black National Anthem, lift every voice and sing, 
it talks about loyalty to your native land in spite of everything that you've suffered. And so I think we're actually, all the pain that we're reckoning with right now is because we're on the cusp of finally, finally breaking free of all of this history and being able to move forward. So for any of you, why do you believe the church was the one institution, even pre-slavery, right? During slavery and after slavery was never touched. Why is that? Like, what's, what's the power behind the black church? Well, you're asking an old, an old Lutheran that question again. I'll just say the power behind the black church is, is, this, is the blood of Christ. Okay. And, Amen. Uh, and that's it. So, you know, that's because it's the truth. And uh, the truth cuts through, and uh, the truth sets us free. And, um, you know, as a, as a historian, as an economic historian, then uh, you can see that there's been a lot of oppression in the past. And, and, and to be frank, there will be in the future because of the ever presence of human sin. But the church has the truth, and the black church has carried that torch um, oftentimes better than the white churches have. So I would, and I would just, that's why they've got a handle on the truth. But now we find the government questioning the church, questioning um, tax deductions, questioning whether or not things should, you know, at, at some point they're starting to even destroy the church as well. Knowing that the black church is the one institution in the black community that has literally held it together since we've been on the face of the earth, how do we combat that? We've lost real estate, we've lost housing, we've lost money, we've lost banks, we've lost every place that we've built and said we finally won and then somebody came in and took it away. They changed the law, they threw in a policy. You know, I'll, I'll say this as, you know, I think when we, of course I agree as the, the blood of Christ and on the flip side of that, there is this argument that you can make that the church and what it taught was patience, long suffering. It didn't teach, hey, if you slap me, I'm going to slap you back. So you can make the argument that some of that was the reason why I was not touched is because it kept people at a place where, hey, we're not going to uprise. You can make that argument. On the flip side of that, and Kenny, you brought this point now where, and it goes back to some we, we've said earlier, and, and I'll say this as an African-American man, it does seem that when we get to a point where we're making progress, policies start to get enacted. And, you know, we and I, you and I talked about the, uh, there were, there, in the city of Milwaukee, the wanting to start taxing the churches and things of that right, nature. Right, right. And, and, oh, the good one was for every so many members you have, you have to have <laughs> one and a half spaces of handicapped parking, which what? would have basically wiped out right. every what? church. In oh, the city. that's insane. Yeah. Yes. And, and, and part of that becomes... Uh, I'm not necessarily a huge conspiracy theorist, but when conspiracy. you, <laughs> but, when sometimes, you when, <laughs> but sometimes some of the conspiracies are true, <laughs> some stuff like the now we're starting to tax churches and things of that nature. Um, when we get to a point where when you look at the church, the church was the one place where we had services, we had you know, people taking care of, of one another. There was, it was a hub to a certain degree. It yes. could have been an economic hub. It was a spiritual hub. It was a psychological hub. So now when you start having government attack that, it just perpetuates and reinforces this attitude of, you know, whenever we get to a point where we are picking ourselves up by our bootstraps, 
why should we why should we continue to keep going? And so I, I think there's a there's a discussion made uh, about why the church was so you know strong and why it was you know such an important pivotal organization in the black community. But now, where do we go? And I like your book. I mean, I think we have to get back to free market economic principles because quite honestly, I, I think I'm biased. I think the best social program is a job. You know, I, I think there are things that we consistently have to question as African-Americans. And I'll end on this point. When the George Floyd incident occurred, um, I had a bunch of people that I know, bankers, and good, good, nice, cool people, uh, great people from all walks of life. But white bankers would call me and say, Jason, we want to help. And the way you start helping is who's on your board? Who are you giving? Who are you investing in? And what we saw was the version or this idea concept of help really meant we will now start doing things we should have been doing in the first place, like giving loans to black folks. That's not necessarily helping, um, particularly when you don't tie it into empowering those individuals to be sustaining. Right. In essence, all you're doing is just issuing more debt. That only helps you <laughs> in the long run. Uh, same thing with the government. Today, I literally wrote out $700,000 worth of grant dollars. And I've been complaining to my friends in the legislature and in the governor's office. This is a horrible way of doing economics because on one hand, you're giving money away. You're not teaching anybody anything. You're not empowering them. And when that money's gone, then what happens? And so these are the kinds of things that when we say we really want to change, do we really? You know, and, and so. It just I have to say that because I think when it comes to free market, helping out communities of color, African-Americans, I said this. I know I told you all I would shut up after this, but literally I'm going to shut up after this. Right. I made the statement. I made the statement that 90 percent of the programs I see directed towards black people are garbage. Yeah. And people got upset at me. Majority white folks. And they were like, well, aren't you afraid? And I want you to listen to that. Aren't you afraid to speak the truth? And then other people would say, well, you're biting the hand that feeds you because we get government contracts. No, my job is to empower people to be self-sufficient and sustaining. Giving people money just willy-nilly doesn't help. Yeah, Google the Oath for Compassionate Helpers from Bob <laughs> Lupton from his book Toxic Charity, which yeah. I put into my book. I quoted in the book, right, because he opens up and he says, Never do for somebody what they can do for themselves. <laughs> Always look for opportunities for exchange. Because why? When we are just hand, handing things to people, number one, whether or not they ask for them, right? We're treating them like mere yep. recipients, like they have nothing to offer, like yep. they have nothing to offer me, right? Why can't we have a business exchange? You probably have some skill or talent that I can benefit from. And that's the attitude we have to have, right? Not just a mere one-way right. kind of giving. And so now I can go sit down and you all can just take over. Right? <laughs> Sorry. Because I, I, I read your dedication. When we come back, I want to I want to touch on something that I touched on earlier, but I didn't I didn't get any spark. But I think now I'll just call it out. The question I have when we come back. In your dedication, you mentioned Booker T. Washington and not W.E.B. Du Bois. And I'm interested in knowing why you're listening to. 
Dr. Ken Harris, Truth in the Afternoon on the new 1017 The Truth. We're live from the Robert W. Plaster Free Enterprise Center at Concordia University, Wisconsin. You're listening to Concordia University, Wisconsin's Free Enterprise Center Economics, Politics, and Philosophy on the Bluff Speaker Series. Our guests are Dr. Rachel Ferguson, Assistant Dean in the College of Business, Concordia University, Chicago, and author of Black Liberation Through the Marketplace. Mr. Jason Fields, President of Madison Regional Economic Partnership, and Dr. Van Mobley, Professor of Economics and History at Concordia University, Wisconsin. And now, live from the Robert W. Plaster Free Enterprise Center at Concordia University, Wisconsin, your host, Dr. Ken Harris. You're listening to Truth in the Afternoon. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Harris. So, before the break, I had a question. And I looked in your dedication, Rachel, and you had a mention of that other guy. <laughs> Booker T. Booker Washington. Booker T. Washington. So, for those of you that don't know, Booker T. Washington basically espoused that we should wait for the good people to come together and have a crisis of conscience and give us what we asked for, 40 acres and a mule and land and jobs and banking and all that. That is a super unfair way of describing Booker T. Washington. And that's true because I'm pro W.B. Du Bois. Okay, so got it. I Booker, like, right, right. Should I say something positive about Booker T. Washington? You're not biased at all, huh, bro? Not biased at all. <laughs> Me? But yet, Booker, uh, a W.B. Du Bois was a proponent of the talented 10th man. Right. That yeah. that one who goes on and goes to college should come back to their community and be a leader and uplift the race. So my question is, well, what? And I guess I say it in a crying way. Why wasn't why wasn't Booker T. Washington in your dedication? Uh, you mean no, Du Bois? I'm sorry, Du Bois. See how yeah, confused so I am? Say it again. That's how upset I am. I you get the name. You're wrong. very upset. <laughs> yes. I mean, it would be, it would be really weird because my dedication is about those who really embraced the American project and and felt that it had hope you know hope for Black Americans in the future. Du Bois didn't. Du Bois became a communist. Right? I mean, he defended Stalin. Yeah, but that wasn't until kidding. later in his yeah, later life in... and he moved to Ghana, but come on. Yeah, so... so you're going to hold against him what he did in later in his life. I'm just saying it would have been confusing for, for the dedication. You know, it would have been confusing to put a communist in a dedication for, you know, a classical liberal book. But, but let me just say something about Washington here. Yes. Washington was in the Deep South, right? He's running Tuskegee. He came out of the Hampton Institute. The Hampton Institute created so many black property owners. It yes. really, really pushed black property property ownership. And he continued that legacy in Tuskegee. Um, I think that he was his uh, National Negro Business League, I think, was a huge part of building a middle and upper class black group that would go on to be the main movers and shakers in the civil rights movement. True. And what I'm saying in the book is that Booker T. Washington could not come out and speak the way that Du Bois could being in the North. Right. And say out loud that he really wanted all of these political rights. But we know he did because he was secretly funding some of these cases, even Correct. Du Bois' own cases. And he was uh, supporting boycotts and things like that. But he had, to, he had to walk very carefully or they would have literally burned Tuskegee to the ground. True. They sent assassins to kill him. 
okay? Like, it's no joke. And so I think it's too easy to, to read one line that sounds assimilationist by Booker T. Washington when he was speaking in front of a very diverse group. At the exposition. At Correct. the exposition, right? Correct. And had to be very careful about what he said and then condemn all of the incredible work he did, he did without which we would not have had a successful civil rights movement. There's no way. Uh, just by saying, you know, he said these wrong words. It's like, guys, are you living in the Deep South, running an institution in the in the late, you know, 1800s as a black man? What would you have done? I think he was using his practical reason to build up the wealth of black people because he had the long run in mind, and he knew that it was going to take time to build enough power and clout to bring about the political ends. You're not supposed to be able to argue that that well. <laughs> so I'm going to reject everything she said, right? But Du Bois but, but was a, a, an excellent, excellent sociologist. Correct. Absolutely. Correct. You should he understood read his how people moved. He was fantastic. Um, he, and, he and Washington were in constant contact with each other, back and forth, letter. And they, they were friends at first. They were friends, and, and, yes. and then they broke up, and then later in life. And, but it's hard for me to deal with somebody who defended Stalin. I, that's, that's tough. That's a tough one. He's a, he's a communist, I mean. Yeah, he was a communist. That's what they do. Yeah. But what really is empowerment then? We understand Du Bois. We understand Booker T. Washington. We know what the end was. We know what they started that culminated in the Civil Rights Movement really didn't go as deep as it should have because, in my estimation, the 70s and 80s, we had to deal with assimilation, right? Yes, you can get a job, but you have to dress like this, walk like mm. this, talk like this, act like this, or you can't get a job. And I think that's where we kind of went off the rails. How do you empower people after that? Does it actually take, and I know we only have a couple minutes, does it, does it actually take the death of a George Floyd to, for somebody to recognize that we, we actually promised empowerment, but we really didn't give it? I don't want to step on anybody's toes. Um, you know, I think empowerment, when we think of political empowerment, I need to know that the system protects me just like it does everybody else, and we're not there yet, right? I don't think that's all based on race. I think some of it is just corruption in our criminal justice system that affects blacks disparately, but affects everybody uh, to some extent. And so that's the political side. But I think in terms of civil society, you are not empowered unless you have a situation in which you can be supported and raised into a flourishing life, right? You need to have families, you need to have communities, you need to have church communities, you need to have mentors, economic networks, and those were many of the things that were destroyed. They were destroyed by the highway system, by urban renewal, by redlining, by the perverse incentives of the welfare state. I mean, you can just start stacking those and seeing how destructive they were. And so there's so much to recover from. But I think when you go back to empowerment at a base level, you're talking about your basic political rights being equally protected, but then also this question of civil society where you can really be mentored and brought up into a life that's meaningful to you. That's a lot to uh, unpack, and we'll do that in the 5 o'clock hour. Um, Self-help. Can that bring about empowerment? And we only have about a minute or so, so I'm going to sit here and, and uh, pontificate on. But will self-help bring about empowerment? There are so many avenues that are blocked, so many things that don't allow us to be able to move forward, because every time that we help ourselves, it's taken away through policies, through um, just sheer will of 
elected officials. And so when we come back, the talking text line is, is, has a great question about black people wanting to be and wanting in on the privilege of citizenship. And there's a question about that that we'll discuss when we come back. Jason Fields, Rachel Ferguson, Van Mobley, we're here at the Concordia University Robert W. Plaster Center. I wonder if we can look at the book from a different point of view. And so I have questions, and I want to venture into one of those sensitive places where we start to talk about race and talk about why, and I don't know the race of your co-author. He's also white. Okay, why two white people might write a book like this. Sure. I'm Dr. Ken Harris. We're live from Concordia University, Wisconsin.